If you have your Bible with you, turn to Acts chapter 17. If not, it'll be on the screen behind me here. We're going to pick up the story. We last saw Paul and all those with him in Philippi. Paul and had taken a, a little bit of a beating. He'd been whipped on his back and the back of his legs and had been imprisoned. All the while, the authorities didn't know he, he had been a Roman citizen the entire time. And, and so when he tells them that, of course, they have to issue apologies and escort them out and ask them to leave, leave Philippi. But the church is, is strengthened there. And Paul is going to keep moving. He's going to keep, keep going here. And so we're going to see what happens next. After the church in Philippi, which we talked about last week, such a strong church uh, as we see throughout the New Testament, maybe the strongest Paul establishes, is they're going to move on from there. And, and I'm sure it was difficult for Paul and all those traveling with him to leave Philippi, but they they're have a mission to, to accomplish, and that is to spread the good news all around the world. And so they're going to do that. So it says this in Acts chapter 17, verse 1. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis, say that three times fast, Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on the three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. So Paul and Silas aren't able to lick their wounds for very long in Philippi before they're on the road again. You can imagine how traveling must have been for them as the, their backs and backs of their legs are healing from the beating they took in Philippi. Not pleasant. From Philippi to Amphipolis is 33 miles, so they make that journey. From Amphipolis to Apollonia is 27 miles, they make that journey on foot. From Apollonia to Thessalonica is 35 miles. At least the 35 miles of the last part of the trip were downhill for them. But they travel nearly 100 miles as they make their way from Philippi to Thessalonica, all on foot. And you can imagine that, that journey that they make as, as the bandages are, are, are seeping and hurting, as the wounds are, are just in, in pain, but it's not going to stop them. What we see from Paul, especially from Paul throughout this whole time, and from Silas now, is there's not a lot that's going to get in Paul's way. When he's, when he's determined to get somewhere or do something, he's going to do it at 100%. He's going to go all the way. And so they're not deterred from the the beating they took in Philippi, and they get back on the road, and they're going to take this Jesus everywhere they possibly can. They go, of course, first to the synagogue, which is their practice. Anytime they go to to a city that has a synagogue, they're going to go there. In Philippi, there was no synagogue, so they went out to the river. The reason they went out to the river was because Jewish people had to go through a ceremony of cleansing before they worshiped. And so they knew if we found water that was running, we could probably find the Jewish people meeting. Here in Thessalonica, the population they believe is roughly 200,000 people, so large enough for a synagogue. A synagogue had to have 10 families, essentially, 10 men to form a synagogue, and then once you had that, you could, you could make a synagogue, a formal synagogue. And so Thessalonica has plenty enough people to have a formal synagogue, something that Philippi had lacked. So they go to the synagogue, and three separate Sabbaths, so three different weeks, Paul gets up and speaks about this Messiah, this one that was to come, who had been predicted in the Old Testament, who he believes, just like you and me, is, had, had come and lived and died and come back to life. So he proclaims the message of this Messiah, this, this Jesus. Some Jewish people in the synagogue are persuaded, and they join Paul and Silas. They hear the good news, and their hearts are open to it. As did a large number, we hear in Thessalonica, of Gentile people, people who had feared the God of the Hebrews, 
and who, but who, who weren't, didn't grow up Jewish and weren't Jewish ethnically. So quite a few people, including some prominent women in the city, joined this new movement of the way, Christians as they had become known. So we were here in Philippi. Paul travels down here, and now we are here in Thessalonica, as you can see here right on, on the coast. Good doesn't stay long for poor Paul, and the trouble seems to follow him everywhere he goes, and that's what happens here in this next section, beginning in verse 5. It says this, But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his home. They are all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post-bond and let them go. What we've seen throughout this is there are people who, once they see Paul's popularity, they get jealous. It happens all the time. It still happens to this day. So they're jealous of what Paul has done, and so they decide they're going to cause a problem. So they go to the marketplace where people who are unemployed go to find employment. Right? If you don't have a job and you need to find a job, you're going to go where people are buying and trading things. So they find some of these people who are likely unemployed, who don't have a job, who, what's the saying? Say, idle hands are the devil's playthings, right? That's the saying. If you're not doing anything, you can get yourself in trouble pretty quick. If you don't remember being 16 years old and having nothing better to do than find trouble, then you know what I'm talking about. People are possibly paid even to start this, this, this mob. We don't know. But there are some bad characters in the marketplace. They form this mob and they start a riot in the city. We get that mob mentality again, which nothing good ever happens from it. They rush to Jason's house because Jason has brought Paul and Silas into his home and welcomed them. We don't know much about Jason. All we do know is that he's willing to, to bring Paul and Silas in, just like Lydia was in Philippi, to bring them in and house essentially the church there at this point, because the church is just a group of individuals, which that's still the church today. We might come here to this building and, and call it a church, but the church isn't the building. It's just a building, right? This building could be anything. The church is the people who sit in it. It's us. We're the church. This is just a building. It's a great building, but it's still just a building. And so the church doesn't matter if there's two, three, or 2,000. It's the church. And so Jason and the few believers that are there are drug out because they're accused of simply being hospitable. That's the accusation against them, right? Look at verse 7. These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, verse 6 and verse 7, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. That's it. That's all he's done. It's like, hey, you let these people stay with you. How could you, right? Which is, a, is a, not a real great form of logic. It'd be like every time someone who owns a hotel lets someone, a criminal, stay there, they'd have to go to jail for it, right? It's craziness. But when you're not thinking, you, you say and do really weird things. And so they're drug out and accused of just being hospitable to somebody. But, but notice what the accusation is. It's really important. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. Here in Thessalonica, someone has connected the dots. Most people haven't done it yet. But when Paul and Silas and Timothy and anybody, Barnabas, anybody who says Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the king, is threatening another king. 
And they're actually right. When we claim that Jesus is the king, we say that there are no other kings on earth. That there's only one king, and his name is Jesus. For us to say that is no big deal because you don't live with a king over your head. Thank you to the first patriots in 1776 for doing that for us, right? You don't have a king. You don't have a queen. So when you say Jesus is king, it's no big deal. But for the first Christians to claim Jesus is king is a real big deal because they're supposed to have a king already. And if you're not a big history fan, then you don't know that kings don't like other people claiming to be king when they're king. People lose their head. People did. They lose their heads all the time for those accusations. Claiming to have another king was treason. And so what someone was smart enough here in Thessalonica to realize is, hey, we can get this crowd stirred up if we, realize, if we get to the point that these Christians have taken Caesar off the throne and put Jesus on it. That's what they've done. Paul will write to the church in Philippi that someday, chapter 2, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. What? Not that Caesar's king, that who's king? That Jesus is. When he writes those words, it's not an accident. Saying when we, we take Jesus into our heart, we get rid of every other king we may possibly have. Doesn't mean we, we don't obey government and the authority over us. The book of Romans talks about that. But it says that we place no other king in our heart but this Jesus. That he's king of our life. That if another king comes about telling us to defy what Jesus tells us to do, we say absolutely not, never. And so the accusation against them is actually true. Someone figured it out in Thessalonica. They are defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. That's true. Paul believes that there's a king, and it's not Caesar. One of those kings that is named Caesar is going to be the one who actually ends up killing Paul roughly a decade and a half from now when this happens in Acts chapter 17. So Paul believes it with every fiber of his being because he's going to lose his life because of it eventually. The question is, do we? Who's the king of our heart? Oftentimes it's us. We might not have a king that we place on the throne of our heart, but we place ourselves. My wants, my desire, my pleasure, my comfort. Me, 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 me. Sometimes we place other people on the throne of our hearts. It could be great other people too. It could be a spouse, it could be kids, it could be other people that we love dearly, but we put them on the throne when there's only one who belongs on that throne. Oftentimes for us, because we live in a country where we've been so blessed, it's stuff. We place stuff. We make stuff our king. If I just had a new, you fill in the blank, whatever it is you've been wanting for a while now, that would be it. I'd be satisfied. If I just had a new, bigger, better, faster, shinier, whatever, boat, car, house, whatever it is, that would be the thing that, that, that would fulfill me. That would be, that'd be the thing I need. And you get it, and three weeks later, you're like, oh yeah, uh-huh. We place all kinds of things. We try to fill that hole with all kinds of things that will never fill it. 
So the question you have to ask yourself and hopefully answer today is who is on the throne of your heart? Who's your king? Who's my king? Our answer has to be that of those who are, who are claiming that these first Christians believe so deeply in Jesus that they had taken Caesar off the throne and put Jesus on it. And look what happens when the crowd hears this in verse 8. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. They can't believe it that somebody else would claim to be, to be king. And they made Jason and the others postpone and let them go. Now, not enough to actually punish them. What we realize is that the city officials realize that it's just a mob mentality. And so instead of actually punishing them with death, which is what treason, the punishment for treason was, Jason could have lost his life in this moment. The city officials are like, well, it's, a, just a little, it's a little dispute here. Pay some money to us and we'll be good. You can go on your way. But that's not going to last for these first Christians. They're not just going to be able to pay some money and get out of it here in the near future. They're going to start losing their life because they have placed Jesus on the throne. Just keep that in mind as we go. There are some people in this world today who have to pay that same price. It's not you and me, but there are people who meet in secret, whether it's in North Korea or China or in the Middle East, Christians who meet, who, who end up paying their life because they put, with their life because they put Jesus on the throne of their heart. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Go figure, right? Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. Hopefully, the people in Thessalonica never read this, right? And they're like, oh, these guys are way better than you. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, so did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. What we have happening is we have happening in almost every city. When, when Paul and Silas and others bring the gospel to people, they, are, they, can't, they can't get to it fast enough. They can't devour it quick enough. What we have here in Berea, which is just a short little trip inland from Thessalonica. Thessalonica's here. Berea's here. It's roughly 50 miles off the main road. Remember, they, they went at nighttime. Right As soon as it was night, they left. Why they leave at night? Because people are trying to kill them. So that instead of taking the main road and going to a larger city, they take a kind of a back road and go to Berea. But when they get there, what they discover, they find, is people who are, who, are hungry, who are hungry and thirsting for the good news of the gospel. I want you to see what the Bereans do. In verse 11, we, we read that the Berean Jewish people are of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. Why? What's the reason? And look what they, the Scripture tells us. They received the message with great eagerness and examined the Scripture every day to see if what Paul said was true. Two things. They received the good news with eagerness, but they didn't just receive it blindly. Right? They weren't just a little baby who opened their mouth and let mommy scoop everything possibly in there. What did they do? They put it to the test. It says they went back to the Scripture. Paul, Hey, Paul told us out of this psalm. Or, hey, Paul told us about this book of Proverbs. Paul, told, Paul quoted out of this Isaiah. Paul quoted out of Jeremiah. And what did they do? They went back and looked for themselves. They did the hard work of figuring out, is this guy telling the truth? Or is he blowing a lot of smoke? Same thing you have to do. I have to do. You never accept the word of me or anyone else. You compare it to the Scripture. You open it up and say, what is the Scripture's Say, what did God say first? That's the barometer. That's the measuring stick, right? Is the, is the word. 
is we open up our, our Bible and we look to, okay, is this guy on TV who's frothing at the mouth, is, this, is he saying what he's, what's true or is he just trying to get a bunch of money out of my pocket right now so he can get, buy a newer, faster airplane to tour around the world, right? That's the problem we get into is when we just accept things blindly. We don't test them. And what Luke tells us, that one of the reasons that the Bereans are more noble than those in Thessalonica is they're willing to test the truth. You have to do that in order to believe in Jesus, do you not? There are all kinds of people in this world who tell you that your belief in Jesus is in vain, or it's a crutch, or it's not really true. So what do we do? We open up the book, and we test the book. I didn't, when I was studying to be a pastor, I didn't just blindly go into it going, oh, I'm sure this is true. I studied, I opened the books up and did the research and did the work and said, is this really true? And what we continually find over and over and over again, no matter what field of study or research it is, whether it's the first languages of Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, whether it's manuscript evidence, whether it's archaeological evidence, whatever we look for, you know what the Bible keeps doing every single time something's found? This keeps proving itself true. Because this map I keep showing you, you can go to these places right now. They exist. It might not be the same name, but you can go there. You can find ruins. As I was doing research for this, you know what I, I, I come across? That in Thessalonica, the archaeologists discovered the synagogue we just talked about. That they found it. That it was pretty close to the marketplace. Go figure Luke told us that after they had met in the synagogue, what happens in the marketplace in Thessalonica? People find some people who are unemployed, have nothing better to do, cause some trouble, cause a stir, and cause a riot. Well, archaeological evidence tells us that in Thessalonica, the, the synagogue was pretty close to the marketplace. It's like Luke was actually there and maybe knew what was going on. It's like he wasn't lying to us after all. Go figure. That manuscript evidence for the Bible is the strongest out of any book that's ever been written in history, that when you studied in English class Shakespeare, what they didn't tell you was the closest manuscript you have is seven generations away. And you read, script, you read Shakespeare and thought, oh, this, is, this guy's bright. You didn't once believe, well, someone's changed it over these seven generations since. Where you open the New Testament and you have evidence of first and second generation manuscripts that if we brought here would, would flood this room. That time and time and time again, when the Bible is put to the test, you know what it comes out doing? being proven correct. And that the only time that someone finds an error is when it's like it's supposed to be an instead of a. Or pronoun got messed up. And yet you'll see on Yahoo when you check your email that well, they found something with the Bible that might not be right. It's like, okay, sure, read it. Time and time and time again, and the Bible's been put to test by smarter people than you and me, it keeps coming back proven, proven true. Well, Why? How can it do that? It was written over thousands of years by all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds. People who were kings to shepherds, to you name them. And yet it keeps, keeps being proven true time and time and time again. Well, why? Because we don't call it God's word for no reason. Because God spoke his word to people like you and me who were faithful in writing it down. People who have been faithful preserving that word for thousands and thousands of years, so you and I could sit here today and make sure that we know, without a doubt, that Jesus lived, died, was buried, and came back to life.
the single most important event in human history was death, burial, resurrection. Lots of people died. Lots of people were crucified. Lots of people were buried. Only one came back to life. His name is Jesus. And he wants to be the only one on your, placed on the throne of your heart. He can't sit there with anyone else or anything else. It's him and him alone. And you and I have a choice to make. Do we remove all the clutter and garbage off of that throne and put Jesus on it? Or do we put Jesus on there and try to heap everything else on there because it won't work that way? He'll keep throwing the rest of it off. It's him and him alone. His words have always been and will always be true. Verse 13. I told you that trouble follows Paul everywhere he goes, and even in Berea, where he's having great success, it doesn't last very long. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join them as soon as possible. Everywhere he goes, what what the pattern we have for Paul and those working with him is great success, People hear it and go, yes, this is true. And someone comes and tries to cause problems as fast as they possibly can. And I don't know about you, but reading through the book of Acts makes me exhausted. I mean, reading Paul's story, it's like the dude, one, will never stop. And two, how beat down can you possibly be? It's like time and time and time again, you have a little success and then sure enough, here comes a crowd trying to take your life again. Like, this isn't a game that we're reading here. Like they have to smuggle him out of places because people are trying to kill him, right? It's not like they're trying to slap him on the hand and say, Paul, quit talking. They're trying to take his life. What we keep seeing is Paul just refuses to quit. One of the other reasons that we know that the, the stories we find in the Bible is true, that Jesus did come back to life, is people were willing to die for it. People don't die for lies. Not they're, if not, they're very smart. But what we have is these people who say they saw it, they saw this Jesus resurrected, dying because of it. They have a chance to recount the story. Hey, tell us that it's a lie. Tell us it's not true. And they say, absolutely not. And they meet their end because of it. If someone had made up a lie almost 2,000 years ago that this Jesus came back to life, they would have quit believing it really soon, when the, like when the swords came out. They're like, ah, joke, never mind. Nope, not dying for this. Why are these faithful people, why are they willing to go to the grave because of this Jesus? Because they know with every fiber of their being that the story is true. That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And he's the only way to the Father. He's it. That through his sacrifice, he's reconciled us back to the Father. He's brought us back into relationship with him. That through this Jesus, our sins can be forgiven. That your robe, instead of it being stained like it should be, will be white as snow. Put our faith in him, because who else could we possibly put our faith in? There is no one worth trusting like this Jesus. This promise to his disciples before he left earth was that he would never leave them nor forsake them. He told them to do what Paul's doing, to take this, this good news everywhere they go, and when they do it, he will be with them 
always. And when, what more could we possibly need? But no matter what comes, whether it's good or bad or indifferent, that Jesus is with us, that he's there, and that he cares deeply about us. There is no greater promise in all of the earth you'll find than that, that Jesus loves us no matter what. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for these faithful people who are willing to take your message all over the known world and pay a heavy price for it. God, we saw last week as Paul and Silas were beaten, imprisoned for this good news. We see Paul on the run this week as people are chasing after him, trying to take his life, all because he's willing to bring your good news to people who are in desperate need of hearing it. God, we're blessed that we don't have those same circumstances most of the time, that we can take your good news with us and no one's trying to take our life from us. We know, though, that there are brothers and sisters of ours around the world who are living in the same environment Paul lived in almost 2,000 years ago. Believers who are smuggling Bibles into their countries who have to, have to whisper and meet in secret because there are those trying to take everything from them. God, we ask that you would strengthen them today and every day. Father, strengthen our resolve as we go about. It's difficult for us sometimes to, to take the good news with us everywhere we go. We know that school has gotten back into session, Father, that we go to these sports games, we go to the grocery store, we meet people who don't yet know you. God, help us to be light and salt to them. Help us to bring you with us everywhere we go. And God, would you help us to make sure that you and you alone sit on the throne of our hearts. That we give everything we have to you and you only. God, there are so many things that distract us, so many things that take us away from you. God, would you help us to get rid of the clutter and to come back to you. God, we thank you and we love you. It's in the powerful and holy name of your son, Jesus, we pray and all God's people said. Amen.